Ethel's Travel Tales, accounts from an addicted travel photographer. Episode 2, Changing China, a description of my return visits to China in 1995, 1999, and 2005. May 1995. Travelsphere hired me to do a shoot, a free trip in exchange for photos, and had agreed to let me have one day with the group and the next day by myself with a private guide. The departure from London took us to Beijing, and after a jet lag night, our first full day launched us into the usual tourist activities. A morning cloudy visit to the Forbidden City and a clearer sky excursion to the Temple of Heaven and Tiananmen Square. Not much seems to have changed from my last visit, six and a half years earlier. Still, it was strange to remember the political crackdown on the embryonic efforts at capitalism that happened at the square, a mere nine months after I'd been there last. Based on my quick survey here, China seems to have changed drastically. The most obvious difference is the presence of materialism. Before, cameras were objects of desire. Now, they simply already have been acquired. Nice clothes, Mercedes, Audis, SUVs are commonplace, although the people at least seem to be as fun as ever. Despite the changes, the Chinese joy is still pretty much the same as it was six and a half years ago, although I have seen fewer non-national Far Easterners, i.e. Thai, Japanese, Hong Kong, Taiwanese, etc. Perhaps I'll see them later. The next flight was to Nanjing, a city of 4 million residents, apparently small by Chinese standards. Busy and lively, the majority of the attractions shown to us were of the relatively recent past. Beautifully located at the top of the hill was the mausoleum and memorial to Sun Yat-sen, the man known as the father of the nation. One of the main instigators in the overthrow of the Qin dynasty, he helped form a revolutionary government in the 1920s. Further on and far less cheerful, the memorial hall of the victims of the Nanjing massacre was a reminder of the casualties of the attack on this city by the Japanese in 1937. These are the sort of places where I can see how living standards have changed. Again, very well-dressed people with modern cameras and relatively few children. We learned that the one-child rule doesn't apply to someone who is a Han. That's the majority race, 95% of the Chinese. If one of them marries a foreign national, they can have two children. I think, cynically, this is a way of diluting the outside ethnic races to oblivion. The plan was to go next to the garden city of Suzhou, so we left Nanjing by train, arriving at the city of Wuxi. We did nothing there but to get on a boat to take us by boat on our continuing journey. Everywhere on the way were canals, irrigation, ponds. Weren't the Chinese the great irrigators? I can see the odd ripple in the ponds. Perhaps the locals keep carp. As it turns out, we did have some for dinner the other night, a delicious whitefish. The locals were fishing with long, aesthetic bamboo poles. Suzhou itself is a little bit of a disappointment. Even with photographic imagination, there isn't much to shoot. The proposed visions are great. 
canals, gardens, arched bridges over every waterway. One fantasizes about Marco Polo visiting with ceremonies of state and rich silks, a Sucho specialty even now. But the truth is that the dirty little stagnant moats with old, though still wonderful, semicircular bridges are nearly camouflaged by wires, garbage, piles of brick, and general debris. One assumes that the city was probably glorious once. Traces of how China used to be are still visible, but it is a different society than when I was there last time. Going with a group, of course, changes things. I see far more of the past when I escape that group. Wandering through the streets, noticing the extraordinary variety of what people carry on their bikes, double beds, living room suites, haystacks, etc., and seeing the beautiful but spoiled little only children emperors, all amazing. It's still a life-affirming kick. The train theme continued. We were allocated soft seats at the station, which turned out to be lovely, great, soft chairs. Pity the journey to Shanghai of less than two hours wasn't longer. I'm now back in this enormous city of 13 and a half million people, Shanghai. Because we've been in new places, I haven't noticed the changes, but since my return, memories flood back apace. This city has really altered. It's modern with high-tech communication towers, and I'll be having my own guide tomorrow to take a better look around. Next day in Shanghai. Shanghai has exploded to such a degree that it's more like Hong Kong than the People's Republic. Modern skyscrapers, flashy neon signs, Benetton, Rolex, Volkswagen, and again, very well-dressed people. My guide, Tony, is attired extremely elegantly in tailored gray double-breasted jacket, black trousers and stylish, and well-polished black shoes. He says he gets his suits tailored when he crosses the border into Hong Kong. There was a wonderful scene when he tried to persuade the old guard to let us park. Tony, young, tall, elegant, arguing with the old wrinkly-faced official in his badly fitting green uniform. Old, shine, and new, I thought, and wished I had the picture. Eventually, the old guy won, and we had to park somewhere else. Then, to move on, we were transferred from the new to the old via plane to the city of Xi'an. When I was last in China in 1988, I had been told I would not be allowed to photograph the terracotta warriors, arguably the main reason for a visit. Therefore, I opted out of going there. This time, however, I was officially allowed to take a limited number of frames. Apparently, someone working with the tour group with whom I was traveling had an in, as this company had been one of the first British tour operators to return to China after the Tiananmen Square incident of 1989. Giving such special permission was the official's way of saying, thank you. The guards actually counted the pictures I shot. There I was standing with my tripod, snapping away. But fortunately, when they had finished counting, I felt I had done enough. The next cloudy day we spent by touring the city in the morning and visiting a commune township in the afternoon. Surprisingly enjoyable. The great weather and muddy roads didn't help the general impression of third worldliness, but the enthusiasm and cleanliness cheered things up. The most wonderful place was the nursery school. We got there just as the kids began to wake up. Little things doubled up end to end in their tripper-decker bunk beds. Slowly their eyes opened and they saw us, 
some with smiles even before they knew they were awake, some with scowls. We photographed and waved, and they became increasingly happy as they became conscious. Flashes of views. One little boy trying desperately to wake his buddy as he was missing all the excitement. An even younger child sitting in the darkness at all those foreigners, smiling. My heart went out to them. It wasn't a puppy-kitten cuteness. It was almost like all the endearing charm of China distilled into an essence and poured into the next generation. Travelsphere, for whom I was working, the same that arranged my special shoot, decided I should go with the tour that splintered off onto the Yangtze River. So back I went again via a flight to Wuhan. This time our ship would be heading east in the opposite direction of my last trip in 1988. The city's population had almost doubled in size to around 7 million. But the one place I remembered, the Yellow Crane Pagoda, was still there. We are finally boarding the ship in the late afternoon and the Chinese music is gentle and westernized. I'm staring out into the darkness with occasional glimpses of the odd flash of light breaking through. The green tea is hot, temporarily staving off the cold. That is inevitable. The engines are rumbling beneath me. I'm back on the Yangtze on the far nicer version of the same boat on which I traveled six and a half years ago, the MS Imai. Out there is the world's third longest river, and we're sailing towards Chongqing. The boat has some interesting passengers. The illustrious 11 of us are the only Westerners. The others are Malaysian, Singaporean, including some Buddhist nuns and their younger Buddhist monk. I've never seen people eat so fast. Us decadent English like to eat later and leisurely, allowing at least 45 minutes for a meal. The others arrive absolutely on time, 0700, 1200, 1800, and are finished in about 15 minutes. The wait service is banging plates loudly to clear the rest of the guests. Perhaps the nuns are taught to eat quickly, or maybe if they don't get their own in, they don't get fed. Next day on the river, we sailed through the Gazuba Dam ship lock to enter the first of the three gorges. By some miracle, the sun came out perfectly for the Shiling Gorge on the main river and also on the Misty Gorge on the Danine River. The latter is now known as the Lesser Three Gorges. The lat latter one was the big shock of the day, a quiet, undiscovered backwater of natural beauty the last time I was here. Now there's a massive tourist area with a huge traffic jam where we had to disembark temporarily due to low water and masses of people. The charm of discovery was gone. Right now, I'm sitting at the front of the ship viewing White Emperor City, an extremely industrial town, coal, coal everywhere, at the entrance or exit of the Tang Gorge. It's very polluted. We're coughing every few minutes, and the mist cloud is sinking down to water level. Black mounds border the Yangtze-sized boats, with tiny figures running over the hills. Small sparks are constantly illuminating the rusty ships in repair above the black undulations. Beyond are dark buildings with gray chimneys belching gas the same color. It's almost Bosch's view of hell. The scenes remind me of a train journey I once took through the Ruhr Valley in Germany, midwinter, bleak. Only it's warm here, and on the opposite bank I just heard a cockerel crow, a surreal and terrifying mix of images. 
We stopped at Fengdu, Ghost City, one of the few locations I remember from the last cruise, another place that's drastically changed since the last time. The previous visit, I was impressed by the people carrying poles over both their shoulders and buckets of water balanced on each side. This time, there were none to be seen. Instead of a long trek up steps from the boat to the top of the hill, we took a bus to the entrance and a cable car to the top. Now, sailing between us and the rocks is an old sampan with a fishing net suspended in front. I do hope this side of China never goes. We ended up in Chongqing, where we had a couple of days to tour. Known for its pandas in the zoo, we had a chance to see five of the seven of them, two who were even awake. We found out later that the guide phoned ahead and they had them specially woken for us. Also impressive was the Dinosaur Museum. In a tiny but high little room, lit by tungsten bulbs and a fluorescent strip, were three superb full-size skeletons found in the Gobi Desert, including a T-Rex and a Stegosaurus. Not quite ready to give up the day, three of us took an evening stroll to the night market. Small but fun. Mostly lots of extraordinary food with all shades of golden from sugary orange to crispy brown. Lots of people. Chongqing has a population of 14 million, bigger than mad Shanghai. The next day, our plane returned us to Beijing from where we went to the international airport. The next destination, 11 and a half hours later, would be London, heralding the end of this China adventure. March 1999, Hong Kong. As it turned out, Thomas Cook commissioned me to take the photographs for a food book in Hong Kong. I would be visiting the ex-colony of the United Kingdom, as the handover to China had been two years earlier. Would I notice any changes? Not really, although there were a few. I suppose in order to soften the blow between the communist mainland, China, and the very capitalist island, the government had placed Hong Kong into a special administrative region, the SAR. The border between the two systems was to some degree still in place, and completely free entry did not exist between the two. I wasn't informed as to whom would be let in and who not. As for the place itself, I didn't really see much of a difference, although there was a slightly more Chinese flavor to the place. Still, the money business continued pretty much the same, and I saw no reason, considering how Hong Kong was a major economic powerhouse, why the mainland government would want to change that. July 2005, China. A friend invited me to join him on a trip to China. This time, I would be a regular tourist, not working for any specific company. After the other three visits, I thought it would be different for me to be treated like an ordinary traveler. Interesting was how much China had changed. There were no more joint ventures. Now the Western companies had full-fledged retail facilities of their own. Most of the luxury brands, such as Prada, Gucci, Rolls-Royce, Rolex, were for sale here, and I suspected many of the locals could now afford to buy these goods. The seemingly impromptu street markets and stalls had been replaced by luxury shopping malls. I remember the bridges that hovered over the main streets to get us to the other side were now huge shopping centers with proper crosswalks. Patronizing, I admit, but I missed the charm of the casual shopkeepers. 
Instead of access being restricted with only Chinese guides and their not even being able to sit with the guests, this time our leader was Polish. His particular emphasis was food, and we were treated to the widest variety of cuisines, ostensibly Asian, but not necessarily conventional Chinese. One restaurant prided itself on a banquet that served over 100 different items. Admittedly, we were a large group, and the plates each had very little on them. However, the deli waiters deliberately left the dishes from each course on the table, and by the end we were, indeed, surrounded by over 100 of them. Another highlight was in Sichuan, where we were invited to take part in a local hot pot. Only about eight of us took up the invitation, and the curious local populace watched us as we sat in front of a local eating place, staring into a large pot. Inside was the hottest food I had ever eaten. I discovered after a while, with tears pouring down our faces, that eventually, just past the wall, one can continue eating. However, there is no more taste, and if lucky, no more sensation. Continuing till the end of the meal became a matter of saving face, a Chinese trait that we were bound to adhere to under the circumstances. Regarding Sichuan, once more I found myself on a Yangtze River cruise, particularly in order to revisit the Three Gorges. Here perhaps was the biggest change of the trip. The Sanxia project, the Three Gorges Dam, was now in operation allegedly the largest and biggest ever built. The idea was to bring power to the region as well as to regulate the flow of the Yangtze River. On my first trip in 1988, I'm sure plans were being produced, but to the tourists, there was no sign of any construction. Villages sat along the river, locals with poles straddling their backs that carried goods off either shoulder. The workers were continually climbing up and down on the high banks, carrying whatever was required, either at the top or down by the river. I figured out that labor was cheaper than machinery. There were temples and sculptures alongside at the river level, often with macabre faces and expressions. On the second visit in 1995, lorries were driving along the sides of the Yangtze, constantly roaring past, carrying building supplies. The three gorges were still impressive, but there was a sense that these dramatic scenes would disappear soon. Even some of the medieval backwaters had become tourist traps. This time, in 2005, the river had changed completely. Our ship, decked out far more luxuriously than either of the other two voyages, sailed through massive locks. We were led off the vessel onto land to see the information center that included an explanation of the massive electricity generating project. When back on board, we sailed by some of the features in full scale that we had seen in tiny model form. The three gorges were no longer very scenic due to the high water level that the dam encouraged. Life on the riverside was gone, replaced by new settlements at the top of the hills often with modern apartments towering above the skylines. I don't know what happened to those strange shrines with statues. Perhaps they'd moved somewhere else. In all, the cruise, though still interesting, wasn't as dramatic as that first voyage. Leaving the Yangtze region, our next visit to Xi'an to see the terracotta warriors was a completely different experience than my previous trip. This time, Instead of needing special privileges to photograph, tourists were actually encouraged to do so. 
In fact, a whole new section of excavation allowed visitors to see the enclave. Even so, there was still a huge area left to be uncovered. While there, we also visited the Muslim area of the town, a strange Sino-Arabic mix with a beautiful mosque right in the center, not what I expected in China. It seems the Chinese had begun to appreciate the value of tourism and that foreigners came and are willing to spend money to enjoy the things that were unique to China. On a more optimistic note, perhaps locals wanted to share their heritage with the world. Altern alternatively, on a more cynical bent, it's possible that the Chinese now understood the value of a marginal capitalist society. Tourism can bring in a lot of money. Departing from Xi'an by air, what ended up thrilling me the most on this last trip, however, was the return to my last destination, Shanghai. On the first time, the city seemed a bit sleazy, perhaps resting on the laurels of it having been an international refuge in the 1930s. There seemed to be quite a bit of that left in 1988. In 1995, things had already changed with new construction, high-rise tower block skeletons waiting to be fleshed out. There was a sense of excitement and certainly a proliferation of gaudy illuminated night signs that came close in number and color to the ones in Las Vegas. By 2005, the metropolis had exploded into a city of the future. All around, it looked like the location of a science fiction novel with weird modern buildings rising into the sky. While the rest of the tour left from Beijing, I gave myself a few extra days and flew into Shanghai. On arrival, I was presented with a prototype form of transport from the next century. The maglev, the magnetic levitating train, was put into action to take me from the airport to the supermodern suburb of Pudong. Held up and propelled by magnetism, speeds of 400 kilometers per hour were reached, but only for about six minutes. This duration, however, was enough to get me to the next station, just outside downtown Shanghai. I still had to take a 21st century taxi to get me to my accommodation, though. I managed to get a room at the Peace Hotel, now an elegantly historic preserved legacy from the 1930s. It was located directly across the Pearl River from the most fantastic futuristic skyline of the very Pudong in which I had just landed. Full of buildings that looked as if they came from the mind of a science fiction writer, the view gratified from early morning through to late evening. From my upper story east-facing window, I took a snap every few hours. I couldn't resist heading over there, and via a ferry that seemed old-fashioned considering my destination, I arrived at this vision of the future. I thought I'd use a professional, that is, taking pictures, excuse, and have a Western breakfast at the restaurant on the 52nd floor of the Ritz-Carlton. The hotel occupied the 39th to 58th floor of a tower that offered excellent views right into the center of Futureville. It also provided a good, if not economical, meal. It seemed I was no longer in China, at least not the one I had been in before, Shanghai. I was looking at the world to come, in whatever country it might be. All in all, westernization was strolling in and no doubt with the government's collusion, although I'm sure there were underlying controls. China was beginning to turn into the great economic power that had already shown signs of becoming. Now it's possibly the biggest force in the world today. It was now time to leave China, 
boarding a brand new, extremely comfortable Virgin Airlines plane that flew direct back to London, I would be coddled in eastern ways a little longer before the English side of things took over, preparing me for the return home. And that was the end of my last trip to China. Uh, I'd love to go back if the opportunity ever arises, and who knows when that will be, but when it does, I'll certainly grab it. In the meantime, my next episode will be about food, and specifically in this case about Japanese food and how I had to learn to deal with the strangeness of the cuisine. In any case, I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and I look forward to your continuing support and listening ear. Thanks again. Bye.